Welcome everybody to Learn with Lowell. I'm your host Lowell. Today we're joined with Dr. John Lewis, professor and bird chair, bird dog chair in transitional oncology at the University of Alberta. He's also the founder and CEO of, of several companies. I'm going to list some of them. Hopefully I don't miss everything, any of them. Nano, nano sticks, nano sticks. I'm like mildly dyslexic. I apologize to everyone. Anosen X, Aegis Life, and Antos Pharmaceuticals, which is working on next generation nucleic acid delivery. Uh, first of all, did I say any of those wrong? Am I missing anything? And uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you did really well, man. Uh, I love it. My my daughter calls uh, nanostics nanostics, really tiny sticks. So, so you nailed the, the, my daughter's version of that. Uh, the only Sweet. company you didn't mention was uh, Oshin Biotechnologies, uh, healthspan, hmm. lifespan, genetic medicine company. How, so I, my first question, after just like looking at what you're up to, and it says present on most of these things, do you sleep? Like, do you get any time to sleep at all with how much you have more stuff on your what you're working on than Elon Musk? And that guy like constantly is like finding stuff. Yeah, I think it were a slightly different scale, but I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, yeah, no, I don't sleep that much. I think, you know, I think I think I have that genetic polymorphism that causes you to sleep well, really well for about four and a half, five hours a night, which I do every night. Uh, but I don't mm -hmm. really find I need more than that. Yeah, the uh, of of the ones you're working on, I guess to get a sense of your, your your time management, what are your focuses in a given week, or is it just, or do you have like a support staff and you kind of like jump to each each individual one? I'm just picturing Elon Musk is the only person I know who's doing this many things in the leadership role, so I'm trying to like get my head around how you do that, how you manage it. You know, sleep is one of them, but there's still is like you know 20 hours of the day, where I I just imagine like every second is like you know 30 minute increments. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I, I describe myself as full time at every job. So whatever, mm. whatever comes up, I prioritize and, and try to get it done. I would say there's really, I have two solutions for that. One is just having a fantastic team at each company. Um, so that, you know, the, the kinds of decisions that come to me or the kind of tasks that come to me are the ones that I'm ideally suited to answer. And, and so we're very efficient that way. Uh, and the other, what's the other one? Well, I, yeah, the other one is basically just, yeah, just working really hard all the time. Oh, yeah. no, I said, the, no, the other one's really alignment, alignment of goals. So try to keep, mm -hmm. you know, all the, all these companies seem like they're potentially doing disparate things. But my goal right from the beginning was to initially to cure metastatic cancer. Uh, but really, the technology has taken us in a direction where we're able to, you know, potentially address a lot more, uh, you know, broader questions in, in human health and disease. And you, you've had a long career. I think it's about 20 to 30 years, if I remember in my, my numbers off the top of my head. How has, just focusing on that objective, you know, I think a lot of times people have this idea, I want to do this, I want to do that, or, or X, Y, and Z insert. Uh, and so I'm always curious, how do people execute to get them where they're going? But on a, on a large scale, how how is metastatic cancer over the course of your life changed in terms of how we're treating it? And uh, what's left in terms of the doing and, and having a really powerful treatment where we can just wipe it out in terms of something that really affects people? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah. So uh, it started for me uh, during my PhD. I did my PhD at University, University of Victoria in Canada, a beautiful place, but I was doing hardcore biochemistry, not really uh, applied to any specific diseases. And my father-in-law at the time got diagnosed with metastatic kidney cancer. And uh, I was, you know, I was using this amazing cutting edge technologies in the lab and I saw, you know, what he was offered in the clinic was just appalling. There was basically no good diagnostic tools. There were really no good therapies. Believe it or not, the only clinical trial he was offered was thalidomide. And if you remember thalidomide, it has uh, quite the track record, really the reason why the FDA exists today. And, uh, and, and I basically decided at that point to pivot from hardcore biochemistry and go directly into, you know, uh, oncology. 
And so, and at the, and at the time, you know, uh, we were just starting, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, uh, 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 you know, none of these targeted agents, specific agents or immunotherapies were, were even on the radar yet. Uh, so there's definitely been a revolution in the way we treat cancer. And again, the, the discovery of checkpoint inhibitor, the discovery of immunotherapies like CAR-T have really revolutionized the space. Uh, you know, these targeted therapies, uh, targeting specific oncogenic pathways and, and uh, have really changed the game. Although we're finding cancer is pretty wily and can, can evade a lot of these targeted therapies. Uh, you know, I really think that the, the biggest advances have been in immunotherapies, really arming the immune system against cancer. Uh, and, uh, and we've seen some just dramatic gains, although these gains are somewhat limited. So we've seen, you know, pretty good response rates, these response rates going down to the double digits, but really for many cancers staying, you know, in the, in the low double digits. So, so I think, you know, there's still a lot to be done to try to unlock, you know, cures for the rest of the population. Metastatic cancer in particular, uh, is basically still a very deadly disease. So there are many solid tumors like prostate cancer, breast cancer, uh, and others where if it stays localized, you know, stays in the prostate or stays in the breast, that's pretty much a curable cancer. You know, we can cut it out or we can do radiation, chemotherapy, and, and it's cured. But as soon as it spreads, it really becomes a mostly untreatable disease. And so again, immunotherapies and, and some other targeted therapies are eating away at, you know, cures for metastatic disease. But I think this is really where we need more innovation and, and more work to, to really make metastatic cancer curable. Did did thal- I wouldn't think thalidomide? Thal- oh, my tongue! I I wouldn't think it would do anything to cancer. Would it? What was the what was the per? I know it's like like we're talking like ancient, you know, almost like leeching people. But what was the perceived value of using that as a treatment? Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting because they really, it's really a, a major rebranding effort, right? So, uh, mm-hmm. so you know, it was given to uh, mothers in waiting, uh, uh, you know, to uh, to to improve nausea symptoms. Uh, turns out, though, it has a major mechanism of action as an anti-angiogenic. So it it basically inhibits the growth of new blood vessels, obviously, which is mm-hmm. really important in the development of a fetus. And so we saw these birth defects as a result of this anti-angiogenic effect. And uh, but also growing tumors also need blood vessels to grow. They need to be fed by nutrients and, and oxygen. And so they they stimulate huge blood vessel growth. And so the thought was thalidomide with its anti-angiogenic or anti-blood vessel growth properties would, would have an effect. Hmm. And then so I always imagine cancers as like this thing that just should be happy where it is, you know, like it, it kind of like bunts off and starts doing its own thing. And I recently had Michael Lebanon, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's off at Tufts, and I asked him this question, why is it that something can come from mortal cells and become immortal? And he changes, like, why is it that there's mortal cells when things are inherently immortal, like uh, cancer cells, so they can live forever? But uh, uh, what causes a cancer to go from, hey, I'm happy here, I'm, you know, eating all of what I want, to just start spreading and proliferating like that? Yeah, I would say we don't have a complete answer, but I can mm-hmm. sort of tell you that what we the best that we know right now, it's sort of this multi-hit hypothesis. The idea is that every time a cell divides, it has to replicate all its genetic material, all its DNA. And this process is uh, you know, has a lot of error correcting ability, but it's not perfect. There's, you know, billions of bases, right? So uh nucleic nucleic acids. And these need to be replicated, you know, perfectly to have a perfect uh set of two cells at the end of it. So every once in a while, there's mistakes, and these mistakes get propagated to the daughter cells. And for the most part, these mistakes have no consequence. But every once in a while, if it's if it happens in a specific gene that's responsible for growth, or even more importantly, for the signaling responsible for halting growth. Uh, then it can cause cells to grow to control. And actually this first hit, as if you call it, that is uh, 
isn't necessarily dangerous. So you get a few cells growing out of control. You maybe get a lump. That lump isn't going anywhere. Typically, you won't even know it's there. Uh, but again, if you're increasing the growth rate, you're increasing the replication, you're multiplying the DNA, it increases the chances there are going to be additional mistakes. And sometimes these additional mistakes can be in pathways that are responsible for you know, the pathways that are, you know, in immune cells, for instance, responsible for causing those immune cells to move around the body. If they happen in those pathways and cells that aren't supposed to move, they can sometimes cause them to, you know, to activate the pathways that are involved in, say, immune cell movement. And, uh, and they'll start moving around. They'll start secreting enzymes that break down the local my- microenvironment. And they'll, be, you know, they'll basically take off. And, and if they get, you know, if they interact with the blood vessel and get in, you know, it's potentially game over. They can go pretty much anywhere in the body. Mm-hmm. It sound it kind of reminds me of uh, in, during you know COVID times, which I think the the WHO just said it's no longer a pandemic. Like they're they're downgrading it, but uh, they they said that like you can be exposed to it, but there was like a threshold that once you were exposed beyond that, then you had you know COVID COVID. But below that threshold, your body would just normally take care of it. So it sounds like when it moves, it has to like reach above a threshold for your body not to be able to take care of it, and then it starts cascading to larger problems. Yeah, that's a part of it. So there's some really uh, uh, interesting research around the efficiency of metastasis. So we probably have cells in our body all the time that are getting these mutations and, and mm. fighting into control. For the most part, your immune system can recognize them and clean them up. Uh, and, and so the efficiency of them being able to go through these steps is minuscule. So 0.0001%. But if it happens enough and you have, you know, maybe you have a depressed immune system, et cetera, stress, maybe, you know, age-related disease, for instance, or, or you're just getting older, you know, your immune system starts to lose the ability to clean these up and, and eventually one or two will break through. And, and that's when you see these, these diseases arise. Mm-hmm. The, as I've looked at uh, cancer rates, like we talked a minute ago, it, it, it as we've had, um, you know, chemotherapy and some other stuff come, come up. One, one thing that I felt that has been a huge differentiator in terms of uh, survival rates is the fact that we have earlier and earlier detection. So we can get it earlier and earlier. And that, that, that's, that's, you know, kind of my thoughts. Uh, but what do you think are, like, how do you see it in, in, in your mind? Like, what do you think has, has been causing that? And then like, I guess the plateauing as well, because it seems like we're getting to the point where we're like reaching like a, a like a, like a, 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 a you know when you exercise a lot? Your plateau. And yeah. uh, thank you so much. Right. <laughs> you go where it's going. A plateau. Yeah. yeah, no, it's that's a really good question. And I think there that's one side of a double-edged sword. So hmm. obviously, uh, if you detect cancer after it's metastasized, you you're I mean, you're in trouble, right? You're the survivor rates are single digit for many of these cancers. And so detecting cancers before they metastasize is key. But we have this double-edged sword where you know prostate cancer is a great example. If you look, there's been these rapid autopsy studies in men over 80, almost everybody has some prostate cancer in their prostate by the time they get to 80. It's inevitable. Mm. Uh, They call it the cancer you die with instead of of. But 3% of all men die of prostate cancer. So this is clearly a deadly disease for men. And the real question becomes, uh, it would be great if we can detect them early, but it would be even more important that we can detect the ones that are likely to kill you and distinguish mm-hmm. those from the ones that you're likely to live with and never even know you have. And I think that's that's one of the key questions that I think people haven't necessarily focused on enough. Um, in my research lab over the past 20 years, we spent a lot of time characterizing the factors that cause cells to you know, go from an organized, chilling out cell, doing its job in the tissue, to something that's moving around and escaping. And we found that these, these switches are really 
important both in the mechanism of the cells moving, but also as biomarkers to, to try to tell if there are any of these cells doing bad things in your body. And, uh, and so one of my companies, Nanostics, is really based on that premise that if we can detect factors that, um, that are involved in the metastatic process, we can uh, then uh, detect early you know, prostate cancer, for instance, but most importantly, detect if it's going to be one of those dangerous ones that you need to treat. Hmm. So over your career, as you're developing companies and you're, you're researching uh, different uh, things in your lab, the, is innovation a logical sequence of steps? In terms of you, you have you have a hypothesis, you have, a, but you have a pretty good idea. Of like, what is the outcome going to be? Are you often surprised by outcomes? Do you you do you do an experiment, or have you tried something and been just completely uh, thrown for a loop? I think the a really great example of this in the last like ten, oh, wow, it's been twenty years uh, with CRISPR is like that was kind of an accident. Like uh, Dr. Duadna was looking at something else, and I was like, hey, these microbes have like this really weird function. What is that? And uh, that was just like fund foundational research. I'm, I'm curious, in, in your experience, have you seen that as well in, in any curveballs and, and what were they? Oh, absolutely. I, I, honestly, I think that, you know, 90% of the great science happens by mm. mistake. It's it's really noticing the the things that were unexpected in your experiment and trying to explain them that really usually uh, uh, creates the great breakthrough. Uh, and so I would say one of the most important, actually the one that sort of launched my academic career, I uh, was working at Scripps Research Institute in San Diego. Uh, a good friend and one of my co-founders, Andrew Zilstra, was working in the lab next door. Uh, I was working on nanoparticles, trying to make nanoparticles home to tumors and deliver drugs. And he was trying to model how human cancers grow in chicken embryos, believe it or not. Um, and mm. the thing I loved about his model, of the chicken embryo model, is that he actually visualized the cancer as it's moving around. And, uh, and he was, uh, so his lab was focused on uh, this, and, you know, he had a library of antibodies that had some effect on the way cancer cells spread. Uh, and we used, uh, basically, we combined our nanoparticles with his chicken embryo to show that the antibodies that prevented cells from metastasizing uh, actually did a really cool thing with the way tumors grew. So it actually didn't prevent the tumors from, uh, the tumor cells from multiplying. So they multiplied like crazy. Mm -hmm. But instead of invading the surrounding tissue and sort of migrating away and getting to blood vessels, they form these like really compact balls that mm -hmm. if you did any sort of a normal type of study in cancer where you, you know, put cancer in a mouse and, and look to see if it spread and did pathology, you would have never seen this. This is something mm -hmm. that we only discovered because we were actually taking, you know, photographs basically of the tumors as it was growing. And as they, we watched them dynamically grow, they just look completely different. And it turns out... Uh, we learned later over you know, another five years of research that we were actually stabilizing the, the interactions between the cells. So they were they would interact with each other and they just weren't able to let go. It's like we called it tumor glue in the end um, mm. uh, because the, these cells were essentially glued together. And, and it was for us, that was a eureka moment because, of course, you know, you think about if a cell's moving, you want to try to figure out how to stop it from moving. So everybody's concentrated on all the proteins that are involved in cells reaching forward and grabbing and, and sort of moving themselves. Um, but nobody was really looking at the sort of the release at the end. Uh, all we had to do was stabilize these proteins at the tail end of the cell a little bit to glue them in place. And we saw these cells trying to move and just snap back into position. Uh, it was really remarkable when you watched it in real time video. Uh, but mechanistically at the end, it had the, uh, it had the ability to completely block metastasis. Hmm. Would that be 
if we were to use that with people, would that be something that if you were diagnosed with cancer, they might put you on a therapy that would cause the cancer to just kind of like be in stasis? Because one thing that I, I fear when I hear, like when I see my doctor, like, hey, I don't have cancer, right? You know, like as much as we can tell, it's like it's once once you have the diagnosis, it's also to the point where you get treatment. And if you could kind of like say like, hey, cancer, wait until I can get you know all my stuff together so I can kill you, that'd be kind of nice. Is that how you see it being implemented or how do you see that 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 research uh, uh, in the wild? Yeah, no, that's a great question. It gets really at the root of uh, all of metastasis research. It's very, very difficult to do an anti-metastatic therapy trial because, and prostate cancer is a great example because the natural history of prostate cancer can be over decades. So if you wanted to ask the mm. question, does this therapy prevent metastasis? That'd be a 20 year study. It's really untenable, but there are certain cancers where it probably would be feasible. Uh, and it's interestingly enough, glioblastoma or brain cancer isn't really regarded as metastatic because it grows in the brain and spreads throughout the brain. In my mind, I call that metastasis because if it's so if it's migrating and invading outside of the primary tumor, that's metastasis to me. Um, and so, and but it's that spread or metastasis through the brain that's really the deadly part of it, and uh, and can't really can't be treated. So I think you know you look at glioblastoma using these treatments, and you and because of the you know the timelines, once you're diagnosed with with glioblastoma, you know you maybe have a year, year and a half to live. Uh, pancreatic is another cancer that that uh, uh, you know uh, progresses extremely quickly, is very deadly, and so you could probably do a trial for these anti-metastatic uh, drugs in that kind of cancer as well. Um, but the holy grail would be, you know, solid tumors like colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. And hopefully if we saw activity in, in these more aggressive cancers, they'd be able to translate to these other tumors. I think the, not the FCC, the FDA, FDA, the FDA, thank you. The FDA is either thinking or they're coming out with this uh, new guideline where they're willing to take uh, data not from animal like I think they're looking for like they'll take stuff from like organ on a chip or I think it was even um it might they, they might just take like really really strong machine learning models but I think it was organ on a chip. Do you for this type of thing could you have like cancer on a chip affecting a specific uh part of the body like colon cancer or whatever so that you could do this type of research as a way to artificially generate it that would get you data that would be supported by the FDA and be cleared so that we can get into people or how do you how do you see yourself alleviating the the fact that it is hard to like find a cancer that you you can uh, uh study. Yeah, that's that's a great question as well. I think I would I would love to be in a world where we didn't have to do animal research to to learn mm -hmm. whether these drugs work or not. I think we're and I love the fact that the FDA is thinking about this. And I think for certain specific situations, uh, we're immediately going to see change, uh, and and that's a great thing. I think cancer is you know the way cancer grows and spreads is incredibly complicated. There are mm -hmm. literally hundreds of cell types involved, immune cells you know, a fibroblast, endothelial, all these cells, you know, that, that create blood vessels. I think it's extremely difficult to model um, metastasis in a dish. I mean, we have models mm. and they can be somewhat predictive, but we've been surprised again and again by what happens actually in animals that I would hate to take that out prematurely. Um, look forward to a future where it's possible though. Yeah, that could, that could potentially be an eighth company that you could work on if, if time <laughs> allows. But, uh, but the how do you see the next generation nucleic uh, acid delivery system fitting into the the structure of what you want to work on and making the change that you want to see? Sure, yeah. So so in my cabinet career, you know, as, as I said, I'm focused on what makes a cancer cell that's likely to spread different from one that's likely mm -hmm. to stay put. And so we've developed actually in the chick embryo model ways of doing unbiased screening to discover new genes that are driving that spread of cancer. And we've been pretty successful. We've identified over 20 so far. 
Uh, all of these are completely novel, not described to affect uh, metastasis previously. And uh, for at least six of them, we'd be able to demonstrate if we hit that just that one gene, we can completely block metastasis, you know, by over 99%. So, so the goal for sort of developing this innovative genetic medicine technology um, that's the, it's called the Fusigenics proteolipid vehicle. So it's similar. We think of it as sort of an LN lipid nanoparticle next generation. Um, the goal for that in my lab was to use that platform to cure metastatic cancer using these gene targets that we discovered in my research. Um, and we were looking at, uh, sort of the other gene delivery mechanisms that were available in the market We're you know, we all know about LNP or lipid nanoparticle now, cause we've probably taken Moderna or Pfizer's vaccine for COVID. Um, we may be, you know, you may be familiar with the gene therapy platforms, uh, adeno-associated virus or AAV. This now has a commercial product for eye diseases, for instance, for gene therapy. Uh, and in 2016, we realized that neither of these technologies were really going to be able to blow open genetic medicine, you know, be used for CRISPR, be used for RNA vaccines, be used for all of these amazing tools that are being developed. And so we decided, you know, we saw that our Fusigenics PLV technology we could deliver DNA, we could deliver RNA, we could deliver gene editing. And we thought, you know, we have the opportunity to go after many diseases other than cancer. And so we launched Antos Pharmaceuticals in 2016 with exactly this purpose, build a, a genetic medicines platform technology company that would begin to develop tools to be able to do gene editing, gene knockdown, you know, g uh, gene therapies, and, uh, and, you know, and, uh, and, you know, without another technology that was able to do all of these things, we saw, you know, a huge opportunity for us to, to cure a lot of diseases that would be otherwise incurable. Do, do you do you feel this, uh, this is something I, I talk with my friends about all the time, which is, you know, how do you take something negative and see, you know, the, the positive of it? And I felt that, uh, I feel like sometimes when it, when I, when we talk about uh, COVID, it feels like kind of like a Manhattan Project level thing happened in terms of like so much money went into technology similar to this. And I'm always wondering, what are some of the positive, you know, ramifications of this? Uh, did, did, did COVID accelerate anything you were working on in terms of, you know, bringing it either closer to market, making it easier for people to understand when you're talking to an investor, uh, depending on your investor, you might, they're not, a lot of them aren't really all that technical. They have like technical people to help them. Uh, so maybe like they're familiar, more familiar with the, the concepts, they're more willing to fund you, which, you know, you know, has this proliferating effect from there. But uh, if we look at uh, COVID is like a Manhattan Project level thing that proliferates, you know, uh, nuclear energy and, you know, reduce the cost of energy and that type of thing. Uh, what what benefits do you think uh, your company, your what you're working on has generated from it? Uh, again, that we, COVID had a dramatic impact on us. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the, you know, before the pandemic, as we were just sort of hearing the news about this virus and, you know, overseas, we were really bringing this uh, Fusigenics PLV technology. Our first in-human trial was going to be in oncology. And we had sort of identified the principal investigator. We'd sort of thought about manufacturing. We're getting ready. We've designed the trial. We're all ready to go. Uh, and then, you know, COVID hits, lockdown happens. Uh, you know, we worked pretty extensively at the University of Alberta as well. And, uh, and the university, you know, was planning to shut down all the research labs. Uh, and we, you know, and we were familiar with Moderna. We we're familiar with uh, BioNTech and Pfizer. And we had a pretty strong feeling that the RNA tech, you know, LMP technology would be successful as a vaccine. Uh, but we also knew that it would have pretty key limitations in the fact, basically, that it's RNA is, you know, it's designed to be labile, it's designed to be degrade quickly. And so we thought, you know, the freezing to minus 80 and the cold chain for RNA vaccines would be a challenge, which we've seen. But uh, and, and it's really created this vaccine inequity across the world where we have access in first world countries, to these vaccines and not in third world countries. Uh, and we also saw that RNA would not likely be as durable 
Uh, and so, and we've seen that as well. So in teenagers, for instance, some of these RNA vaccines have durability in, in weeks instead of months. And even for adults, you know, maybe less than six months. And we thought, you know, because our platform is similar enough to LMP, but we can deliver DNA, you know, DNA is super stable, very simple and, and, and inexpensive to produce. Uh, and it should be much, much more durable than RNA. Uh, we decided to pivot from cancer and, and develop a, a DNA-based COVID-19 vaccine. And so that completely changed, you know, obviously the direction of the company. Uh, we did, you know, we were very fortunate to get support from the Canadian government for the, that program. And we were able to take this, this platform that at the time was sort of a research and development platform. So we had a few partnerships at the time, but, uh, but we hadn't gone to clinic yet. Uh, and now we've just completed a phase two clinical trial with our COVID-19 DNA vaccine. We're looking forward to coming back uh, to North America to do uh, phase three as a booster. And, uh, and it really forced us uh, in a very sort of high stakes, uh, high energy environment to solve, you know, manufacturing, to solve regulatory, to really mature the platform to a point that that, uh, that we're able to get, you know, we've now um, had exposure in 268 individuals who received the vaccine, very clean safety. We're very happy about the way we manufactured it and, and really opened the door for not only other vaccines, but for other gene therapies. Uh one benefit uh, that I could see with it, mRNA not lasting as long, is that they they talked about, at least I, I remember this, uh, it was a couple years ago, but uh, they talked about like, if we could just get everyone to stop moving for two weeks, it would kill the illness because, you know, the the spread rate and stuff, like, that's, that's why everyone, like, kept trying to do lockdown. So if you can um, improve that for a short amount of time and then it goes away, that's kind of nice. I think one of the concerns that people had is that, you know, how long, I, I, actually, I know a lot of people had this because I, I had a, an episode on the COVID vaccine and it got 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 some great comments there, but uh, people were concerned about the long term effects of it. So the the, the so like the mRNA kind of like trailing off is kind of a nice feature. Does the DNA uh, version of your vaccine have uh, alternative uh, complications where you would see something like not for years, or like how would like the the converse of something that is more stable affect stuff like that? That's a good question, and and it's something that we uh, thought about and looked at as well. I think when it comes to vaccines, though, I mean, uh, I guess there's two things. So with a vaccine, you're basically think of a vaccine as, as basically a, a wanted poster, you know, for for the virus. You're showing your immune system mm-hmm. the wanted poster. Hey, you see this guy in the future, mount a response because he's bad. And uh, but you're only it's only a poster. So you're not really introducing anything in and of itself that's dangerous. It's a very, very tiny amount. Uh, you're basically showing a you know picture of the virus. And so, you know. And there's really other aspects to it too. Um, you know, our platform, when you inject it in the muscle and you make a little bit of the, the coronavirus protein or, or whatever, uh, you know, virus that you're trying to protect against, it's just made in your muscle. It doesn't go anywhere else. And I think, and that's in contrast somewhat to some of the other platforms that, that can be found other places. Uh, and so, we, yeah, we, yeah, and we do obviously talk to, to Health Canada about it as well. And, uh, and we perceive the risk to be pretty much zero uh, and which has been borne out by our clinical studies as well. Uh, I would mm-hmm. say the, I mean, one of the issues of, of durability is really important, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in preventing viral transmission because you want very high titers or very high levels of those neutralizing antibodies for as long a time as possible because, you know, they are the things that prevent the spread. And, uh, and so if your protection falls off in a couple months, then you need another booster to, to get that protection up to prevent transmission. Yeah. I know the, 
I kept being reminded to keep taking boosters and at a certain point I just stopped doing it because I was like, well, I don't know. I avoid people already. I'm a hermit. Uh, and so I felt like the first several uh, offered the sufficient whatever. But um, the something I was curious about is like uh, how, how things progress over time. So in 2016, we, you talked about the founding and I'm wondering what was in place then that let you know, and you touched on this a minute ago, but I'm, what was what was there then that let you know that this was something that you sh you should found that you should put so much energy in like what and like specifically in terms of like what members of the team did you have like it sounded like we had a little touch on in terms of the, the ip that you were going to develop and then um i'm curious i have questions after that but like what was all in place at that time yeah so in 2016 it, well even at the beginning of the pandemic antos had mm. uh i think we had six employees uh you know we we've been successful in bringing the technology demonstrating some really nice data in gene therapy really nice data in oncology uh you know i brought on my chief science officer uh arun Raturi. Uh, you know, he, he just came to me <laughs> out of the blue, sent me a CV one day and, and, uh, and we became, you know, you know, very fast friends. Uh, uh, he had just has a fantastic background and he and I together really built this platform from scratch. Uh, you know, in 2016, we had a proof of concept. Uh, and then by the time the pandemic hit, we had a fully formed, you know, uh, genetic medicines platform. And, uh, and so, and then, uh, you know, with the pandemic, we got an infusion of some, some non-dilutive funding from the government, support from the government. And that allowed us to really dramatically scale the team to now we're, you know, we're over 50 individuals. Yeah, and that's actually, uh, I think is a good segue because we, I, 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 I pinged uh, some listeners to see what they had to say. And one person had as many questions about a lot of the things you're working on, which is kind of cool. But I, one is, uh, I think, I believe in reference to the vaccine. So, um, the basically what are the next steps for the vaccine in the in a previous interview you gave it seemed that there was some type of political instability that disrupted the study what do you think the trials will be completed and this is for barrel master great name uh <laughs> thanks for writing in <laughs> yeah no i would see it's funny because you know that's also you're gonna give you the same answer i give to like what would you do differently if you knew what you knew now and so mm -hmm. you know in the in the uh you know in the pandemic we're trying to move quickly we actually didn't expect the RNA vaccines to move as quickly as they did. So we were running our first in human phase one trial at the Canadian Center for Vaccinology in Halifax when the first vaccines became available and it basically just killed our recruitment. So mm -hmm. we got 23 people in and, and recruitment just completely dried up because the AstraZeneca vaccine was available and I think Moderna vaccine was available in Canada. And, uh, and then we were, so we had enough individuals to show it was safe. And so we were looking for you know, sites to do the phase two and we wanted primary immunization environment. So we wanted a population that hadn't been exposed to COVID yet. And so we found Burkina Faso and Senegal, and we started, we opened uh, uh, a couple sites in Burkina Faso. Uh, and, you know, we didn't know there was going to be two violent coups happen during our trial uh, and all this political instability that, that made it impossible for us to get our results out. Um, and, and we were fortunate that we were able to get the safety data, which is uh, really beneficial, uh, but we weren't able to get a full uh, suite of data. Uh, so we're looking to now to bring the technology back to North America in the booster environment and, and, and hopefully bring this uh, vaccine to the finish line. What do you do when a coup stops your development? I doubt there's coup insurance. Like how what do you no, guys no yeah well no i mean obviously <laughs> our, our primary uh, concern was yeah. all the people working on the trial you know we mm -hmm. were uh we were sort of madly emailing back and forth and and phoning to, to make sure everybody was okay turns out we were running uh, we weren't running at a large center so um so everybody was safe uh but it's just the the havoc that it wreaked on the system there and and the communication just made it impossible for us to complete that trial in a way that 
we were confident about the data. Yeah. So it's it's like you take what you can get, make sure everyone's safe, and then kind of extract as much and then move it to a, an environment that is safe. There's not like like a new government, I imagine, wasn't gonna be like, hey, here's some money to cover the difference. They they have other things to be worrying about. No, it was it was sunk cost. It was definitely a learning experience, yeah. and we we did get you know we did we, we learned how to manufacture. We got the safety data, so I think you know in the end we're we're in a good position to move on, um, uh, and that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Uh, another listener question has a, a question in terms of the what other things you can do with this uh, next generation platform. So this is Adofreak. Thanks everybody. Uh, is Entos Pharmaceuticals also working on developing liposomal? or new nuclear nucleic acid delivery systems for addressing mitochondrial dysfunction in autoimmune diseases, autoimmune diseases. Is that uh, within the capacity of this platform? Yeah, so so Entos, and I'll just quickly go through the platform. So, so Entos Pharmaceuticals yeah. has this platform called Fusogenics PLV or proteolipid vehicle. And you can sort of decode proteo is protein, lipid is lipid, and vehicle is a delivery system. Uh, and mm -hmm. so basically think of it as a next generation LNP. So an, a lipid nanoparticle, basically is a mix of different fats uh, in, a, in a particle. And basically it goes, it gets taken up by a cell in endocytosis and then goes through a process called endosomal escape where one of the lipids, an ionizable lipid, basically breaks a hole in the endosome and, and some of it escapes. Um, so this actually works really well, but it causes some toxicity. So for many applications, especially where you want to infuse a drug intravenously, um, uh, the liver takes up a lot of it. And you get, you know, these dose limiting toxicities in the liver because of this ionizable lipid formulation of LMP. So the proteolipid mm -hmm. vehicle gets around this by using this really cool, tiny viral fusion protein. Uh, it's, it's, uh, so my co-founder at Dalhousie, Roy Duncan. So I, uh, uh, you know, I started my first company there. I met this guy and, uh, and he had discovered this fusion protein that I saw and thought, wow, this is going to revolutionize drug delivery. And what it does is it facilitates a lipid particle to fuse directly with the target cell without being taken up. So it basically, you know, sneaks in the side door, fuses directly with the, the cell, just like a virus would, and then delivers the entire contents, whether it be DNA or RNA or, or gene editing cargo uh, into the cytoplasm of the cell where it can do, do its work. And so it, that accomplishes a couple of things. It gets around this toxicity challenge that we have with LMPs. So we can dose a lot higher and we don't see any uh, limiting toxicity in the liver. So basically we can hit any uh, organ in the body. And the other thing is that the immune sensors uh, for the cell are all located in that same place in the endosome. So it's trying to detect RNA and DNA from foreign objects, bacteria, viruses. And so we completely avoid that. So the immune response that, that people get to these genetic medicines is completely gone. Uh, and so that allows us to, to deliver many different kinds of therapies. Uh, and, and really, there's no limit. We can deliver therapies for uh, metabolic diseases. So mitochondrial dysfunction is a great one. Uh, uh, and, and rheumatologic diseases. Um, and again, we have a lot of expertise in cancer. Uh, uh, and also, you know, the opportunity to make a lot of different you know, high durability, uh, you know, uh, uh, really stable uh, vaccines is also a possibility. Mm -hmm. So. So we, we talked about uh, a bad thing that happened, you know, the, the coup. When I've found in companies, there's 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 times like there's just like regular day, like your answer emails or whatever. But then there's times where you had a strategy and it worked out. And it's like, wow, you know, that's, that's maybe I do know what I'm doing. And so uh, I'm wondering, what are some of the moments like that for you? Where we do know, yeah, I'd love to say that oh, that's that's us all the time. That's how we roll. We always mm -hmm. know. We're oh, doing. that's good. That's lucky. 
<laughs> so yeah, I would I would say that the, I mean I, I've tried to build these companies with uh, with an equal part of both. So we have sort of mm. I think all the biggest breakthroughs we've had over the years have happened serendipitously. So so that result that we didn't expect. So so, so if something failed, but then we look closely at the data and went, oh, holy crap! I mean that that is something I didn't expect. Let's follow that up. Uh, and then but <laughs> that only takes you so far. You really need the rigor and the meticulousness uh, in a drug development company to be able to take something that you know works and then build the data set to a point where you know the regulators trust you and you know it's safe um, you can manufacture it at scale and so yeah we've we have we've recruited some key people in the last year that really have provided that side of things uh, Steve Chen, we recently recruited as our chief medical officer. You know, he has this deep, rich history in drug development. Worked at Takeda. You know, worked at uh, at Eli Lilly, and uh, and he is just you know bringing such rigor uh, to the to our programs. We're really excited about sort of the next generation of therapeutics we're developing, and and you know people like that have really uh, you know I would say matured this company to the point where you know we can do great things. Mm-hmm. Do. You- I feel like uh, sometimes the thing that most people I think miss out and uh, if if anyone leaving like the co- college, I always feel like should join a startup because you get to see so many different things, you get to wear so many different hats. But there usually is like some type of like um, value based, like how you focus on which uh, plates to be spinning. And so I, I'm curious, what um, what do you think your expertise is in terms of building these companies? It sounds like it you like you create the sandbox for your team to really execute. Uh, and do well in that way. That's me guessing. I don't know just from what, what we're talking about. But when you do analyze what you're good at, when you're not good at, what do you think is like uh, I don't know, your superpower for for lack of a, a more uh, technical term for what you bring to the table for your teams and for what you're trying to do? Yeah, I, I think you know if you look at any startup founder, I think it's really it's optimism. You need to be optimistic mm. in the face of overwhelming odds that are telling you that's probably a bad idea to do what you're doing. And mm-hmm. not only have that optimism, but be able to communicate that optimism to your team. Uh, and so, um, so I would say I have that, and also the ability to see a lot of disparate moving parts and how they're all integrating together, uh, and to mm-hmm. be able to sort of move those parts and, and sort of urge people in the right direction, so that all these teams are aligned. And uh, and they may not see it, you know, this year, but you know, I've, you know, two or three years down the road, when they see everything come together, they realize that you know they've been working toward the specific goal that's really part of a much larger goal. Uh, and we've been able to execute on some pretty, you know, uh, really uh, fantastic sort of mission-oriented goals, uh, you know, through that kind of uh, activity. Is there, so Learn with Lowell is the, the name of the show. Is there something that you're currently learning or working on to develop uh, and improve? Maybe someone listening could help. I don't know, I could send some ideas your way. But, uh, you know, what what's the, uh, something you're, you're working on? Yeah. So, so again, we're, you know, in genetic medicine, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the holy, so we have, I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background. So, so obviously we sure. sequenced the human genome. We figured out, mm-hmm. you know, many of the uh, drivers of, of human disease that are genetic based, pretty much all of them. And, and this has been amazing, you know, advances in the way we can upregulate or downregulate genes uh, and now even edit out air, inborn errors so we can cure all these rare genetic diseases. Uh, what we're really missing is a unified delivery platform for us to be able to get those amazing tools to the cells where the defect is and fix it. And uh, and so so again, I mentioned AAV on the virus side and LMP on the non-viral side. You can basically treat liver, you know, maybe CNN. There's you know they're they're really having a problem hitting a lot of the tissues where these diseases originate. So so for us, the the big learning is how to create genetic medicines that go to a specific place in the body. 
And so, so Entos, we've been you know spending the last two years really um, honing down on that. Um, you know, one of the areas we've had some great success is, is CNS or brain. And so, mm-hmm. and that was, uh, you know, uh, we did this transformative uh, collaboration license deal with Eli Lilly uh, about a year and a half ago now, uh, where they exclusively licensed our technology for all CNS diseases. So we just had a fantastic relationship with them working to, you know, to develop cures for things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, et cetera. We're really excited about that. And, but I think being able to get genetic medicines to the pancreas, for instance, to, to treat you know metabolic diseases and diabetes, uh, you know, to the lungs for things like cystic fibrosis, you know, to the skin, you know, for for a lot of these debilitating rare genetic diseases, I think is the key, and that's really where we're spending, you know, I would say the majority of our time these days. Is it possible to have one platform that is able to hit everything, or is it one platform which then has like a different like a, like one nuclear warhead, but then there's a different targeting system for whichever place you're trying to go to? Is that more what it's like? Yeah, so I think uh, we haven't seen the we haven't seen the the a hard limitation for what we're able to achieve with this platform. I think you know every project that we've sort of delved into and, and put a team on to develop a solution for, we've been able to get there. And so, uh, but I imagine that won't be the case for everything, but yeah, it's a platform technology. Uh, there are some cases where we're sort of attaching targeting, you know, uh, we call them moieties, but targeting ligands to the outside that will allow them to, to go to specific tissues. For the most part though, we've been able to solve it using uh, uh, basically just biophysics because we have this mm-hmm. fusion protein that actually does the mechanism of delivery, does the fusion. Um, it gives us a huge sort of engineering space to design novel lipid formulations to allow us to, you know, make the particles a certain size or to make them deformable to squeeze into places where other particles can't squeeze or to have a certain charge to be able to interact with certain, you know, certain cells. And and we've been able to to use all of that design space to create some really, uh, really incredible particles. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm trying to picture it. What would be the, what would be the difference between, let's say we're targeting a cancer in my liver or uh, versus uh, cancer in my my brain. How would having the bio biophysics ability to change different things? How would it look like? It, like what would the sequence look? I'm trying to like picture it. Yeah, I love that question because it's really been what I've been working on my whole academic career on the nanoparticle side. Because um, mm-hmm. everybody talks about targeting, and targeting mm-hmm. is not it's not like a missile. You don't fire a missile with a radar and hit somewhere. Yeah. That's not how it works in the body. In the body, you basically have to go everywhere. If you don't go mm-hmm. everywhere, you're not going to go to the place you want. And so the, the goal is to make a particle that goes everywhere, but then is selectively retained in that place where you want to have the drug have an act, uh, activity. So, so we really, from the outset, have been trying to design a platform that goes everywhere and also is non-toxic. So we want zero toxicity, maximal exposure throughout the body. And then our engineering activities now are taking those subsets of particles that we see, you know, so we, we generate libraries of particles and maybe one of them seems to hang out in the pancreas really well. So it goes everywhere, but you wait 24 hours and there's a lot of it in the pancreas. And then iteratively optimizing those formulations by changing, you know, a couple of lipids or the ratios of lipids or maybe the charge of lipids so that we can bump that retention in the pancreas to a point where we can have a therapeutic effect. So you take nanoparticles, you try different variations of it, see how it affects the body, you collect data off of that, and maybe throw some machine learning or bioinformatics into it to, differ- to differentiate what's working optionally for the different areas you want to target, and then you can make therapies off of the back of that. Absolutely. That's the way. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. So what, um, can you, I don't know, I don't think you probably could answer what type of machine learning you do, but the, uh, 
Anna, is, uh, what do you think about open source, uh, like these new things that are coming out, like ChatGTP, these medical interventions um, to help? Do, do are, are you already thinking about implementing anything you're you're doing, or just how do you think about it? Because I, I imagine, like, whenever I ask people, like, what specific technology they they use, like, obviously they can't answer. So, uh, what do you think about the the field and the open source stuff that's going on? But though, even though OpenAI is technically not open anymore, which bothers me. No, exactly. Uh, but there's enough people doing it that I think there's there's still a lot of optionality. No, I mean I think yeah. you, you know I mean machine learning is just basically sophisticated math uh, and mm-hmm. pattern matching, and and so uh, so. If, really spent a lot of time in machine learning with my company, Nanostics. So Nanostics has developed basically a prostate cancer screening test that uses machine learning of these huge data sets of cohorts to basically uh, early or sorry, early detection of uh, clinically significant prostate cancer, which is basically the prostate cancer we think is likely to metastasize. And so we've learned just a ton about how to structure data. You know, obviously it's the same thing. You need, you need well-structured, high quality data mm-hmm. to get good predictive algorithms. And so we've learned a lot about that through the development of algorithms in that company. And then, yeah, really excited about applying those to drug development on the, on the lipid nanoparticle PLB side. Uh, and so, I mean, there are hundreds of different ways to create algorithms and, and it's just, it's not, I think plug and play is, is, is really never gonna work. So I think you mm-hmm. can do a plug and play algorithm and get an answer. Uh, but I think, as with anything else, optimizing, structuring your data, you know, uh, in a way that that works the best for the algorithm you're using uh, is really the key. And it just takes time. It takes good data. Uh, and it takes a, a, a team that knows what they're doing. It sounds like uh, like wherever Elon Musk goes, there's like some things that he just drags wherever he goes. Uh, when he, like, for instance, the Neuralink, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, when you look at what he's trying to do, he's basically applying principles that he learned at Tesla, you know, like this, this manufacturer process of an outpatient uh, procedure compared to such a place like Paradromics, which is, is not that case. You're going to need a, a neurosurgeon to like implant that. Uh, so it's a, it sounds like what, what you, like machine learning, this ability to, to work with data is one of those uh, uh, building blocks that you're able to apply in several different companies because you, you can see the power of it. You also know how to do it. Like you have like the experience of it. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and that's I've been called uh, I'm a, a parallel entrepreneur or a pathological entrepreneur, but I think <laughs> I've uh, no, certainly. I mean, once you do something once and you really get a hang of it, that you can apply that to, to other companies, and and so we've uh, and and the different companies have done sort of take, taken different paths, you know, more regulated paths, more R and D innovation paths, and uh, and we've definitely taken learnings from something we're doing in one company and apply it to other companies. It's been uh, it's been a yeah. great learning experience. Yeah, the so I've been recently reading. Actually, my, my the book I'm reading on uh, teaching myself machine learning is right there. Uh, but the looking at these different open source uh, large language models that you can then find uh, refine down to apply to whatever thing you're you're doing through training. Uh, d- when you see technology like this, how do you, I think of it like farmers, though, uh, like weirdly enough, like uh, if people want to find like the most science people in the world, just actually using science, it's probably farmers. Cause when they have a, a new crop, do you think they a, a, apply it to the whole field? No, they take like literally a little percentage of it and then they test it out. Then the next year they'll test it out in the core of the field. They slowly increment it over. So like anyone, like I feel like sometimes people look down on farmers, but anyway, so um, how do you, how do you bring in novel ideas into 
like large language models, machine learning, et cetera, into what you're building without it disrupting the flow of your business and the innovation you're trying to do and save people's lives. So like you have something that's like, hey, maybe this will accelerate what we're doing by two years. But if we completely bring it in, maybe it destroys what we're doing or like sets us back. Uh, the pharma model, like, oh, well, we try it over here and then we can slowly extrapolate it over may or may not be like a good analogy to use. But I'm curious, how do you bring in new systems new uh, technology stuff like this uh, into what you're developing and how do you test it to like weigh the, the risks versus the benefits? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I've always been attracted to very early stage technology development and development of innovation. And certainly as we move some of these therapies to the clinic, the, the sort of this highly innovative model, where we're always testing new things just is, is, is antithetical. You need structure, you need to lock things down and you need to move forward in a way that decreases risk and maximizes the, the chance of success for the therapeutic because it's very expensive, it's very time consuming, uh, and the risk of having it not work is high for both the patient at the end and, and the company you know, to survive. Um, but we certainly on the R&D side of things, we're always looking at new things. We're always, you know, uh, uh, we're always trying to incorporate new technologies that could accelerate things. And, and for the most part, uh, it works because we have, you know, we have an amazing team of scientists they're all, you know, we're, we're always uh, bouncing new ideas off each other. We're always getting excited about the new technologies that are coming. And, and I would say for the most part, it, you know, it's usually a win to incorporate new technologies. Again, we ha you have to decide the point at which you brought, you know, a product to the point where, hey, that's it. We've, we've done tinkering. Mm -hmm. It's time to, to focus on the end goal. Is there a new technology out there that you're either considering or you're testing? Uh, there are many different technologies we're 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 looking at absolutely yeah uh, and I would say I would say so again the the, the idea of incorporating uh, machine learning with sort of high throughput mm -hmm. uh, chemistry for instance uh, so uh, so obviously as we're iteratively optimizing these formulations we're seeing certain behaviors that certain lipids have uh, being able to connect that with the, the you know the base chemistry of that lipid. Uh, to be able to predict things using machine learning that we wouldn't have predicted just by looking at the data, uh, you know, I think it's hugely powerful. Um, and there are many companies sort of in the space looking at this. I think you know we were differentiated because the lipids themselves aren't doing the delivery. The lipids are are what are uh, deciding where the particles are going, and our fusion protein is actually doing the delivery. So so we have sort of this whole new area that we can investigate through machine learning, through sort of iterative optimization to, to create things that haven't been created before. Yeah. And then uh, touching back on the uh, the previous statement you made about, you know, things are expensive when you're developing things in biotech. The, how do you decide what is your thought process? Either looking at the technology, looking at your team. I've, I've asked this question to uh, Bob Langer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's out at MIT. And it, uh, but, um, I'll, I'll tell you what his answer is at the end if you want. But the, uh, how, how do you know what to target with your technology when it's so broad so that you can bring your resources to um to the biggest possible benefit and there's many strategies within you could pick something that's technically like easier to bring to market but then and bring it to market you could like replicate it to other things really quickly or something that has like a larger i'm slightly answering your question but how do you how do you make that decision how do you uh, what do you what do you look at what do you think about yeah i mean that's 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 the kind of thing we've been struggling with since day one we've had literally mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of conversations about how to focus our efforts and I would say we've uh, we we're slowly getting there. I think you know we initially started out by having a lot of relationships with different companies doing different things. So we'd be working with you know several pharma companies and biotech companies on specific projects and just testing our technologies in different areas, whether it be gene knockdown or gene therapy or gene editing. And uh, and I think you know over the years we probably worked with 150 companies. 
and and I think we have a much better idea now of where our technology can really make is really differentiated and really can make a difference. Uh, you know, I'm I'm real I'm super excited about gene editing, and mm-hmm. not just CRISPR Cas9, but these next generation editors. Uh, there are new editors that uh, that potentially don't use you know bacterial uh, enzymes anymore. Or there's some human enzymes out there that are you know really exciting. The ability to insert very large pieces of DNA so that diseases like muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis are absolutely on the table as far as curing. And I think marrying you know one of these you know cutting edge uh, uh, gene editing uh, approaches with our you know sort of cutting edge uh, genetic medicine approach uh, could really change the game for a lot of these diseases. What, what do you think? So we're in the early 2020s, which is kind of weird. A uh, hundred years ago was uh, not a good time. But what do you think people should, what do you think would be reasonably, what, what could people reasonably expect would happen by the end of 2030 in terms of our ability to fight cancer? Assuming like 100%, like everyone comes in, you have all the funding you need. Just as one example, like your stuff works, you know, no matter what. Uh, what would be the result? Like, what do you think just in general as the field? Um, with your stuff being successful as well, uh, for the end of 2030s, what would people expect? Uh, their treatments, their, their their survival rates, everything. What, as someone who's in it, what I, I imagine it's a hopeful look, but what does that look? Yeah, yeah. So, and I'd say my my CSO and, and myself over a couple of years have had this argument many times about uh, about what the future is for genetic medicine technology. I mean, I think the pandemic has really. Uh, shone a light on genetic medicine and how it can really very quickly be applied to you know diseases that that that, that plague us and 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 really as i mentioned before there's really no limit to the to the the, the breadth of diseases that genetic medicines can can address um, if we're going to move quickly we need you know we need to streamline the regulatory process the regulatory process i mean it's it's it takes a long time it's very expensive uh, it's obviously based on safety as the the highest bar which is obviously very important but there are ways to um to optimize uh you know this mm-hmm. idea of being able to use in silicon models or machine learning i think is a great step forward and i think if we continue down that road to optimize the time to get a medicine and the cost to get a medicine uh, into patients and approved i think it's really going to speed things up you know my bold prediction is that within 10 years that, you know, up to 30% of all diseases could be treated with genetic medicine. And I think mm-hmm. that's, it's going to rely on a lot of these efficiencies to happen in the regulatory system. But I think the, the really compelling uh, aspect of having a platform technology to be able to do this is that once you, you decide on that first indication, you get it through the finish line and it works. You can then just switch cargos and hit another mm-hmm. disease, switch cargos and hit another disease. You can use all of that, you know, a lot of that safety data to drive uh, the design of the next trial. And hopefully that the time, you know, from discovery to approval will be compressed with each new drug development. Does, when you have one drug that goes through to market, is it easier to take the, that platform and apply it to another disease or do you have to do the whole clinical trial again? Or do you, do you get some like, you know, like partial credit? You know, uh, because you did like it already, like it already works on some levels you already know, and so you only have to do like half of a new thing when you are targeting a new disease. How does that? How does that component work? Yeah, so I would say, and, and just as I mentioned with the platform technology, if the platform technology that you're delivering it in is all the same for mm-hmm. for two drugs, uh, then the only question for safety, you know, and efficacy is that cargo. And if you have a lot mm-hmm. of data around that cargo, how it behaves, and and you know exactly how it works in the body. Uh, then you can use all of the safety data from the previous study with the platform 
uh, and apply it to that new program. So definitely can speed things up. Now, I wouldn't say it's going to make you, you know, it's not going to get rid of all the safety studies. Obviously, you still need to establish safety. But as you build that database of safety with that platform, the confidence just increases and increases. For for personalized medicine, do you know, part of it's like, what do you have? And then how can we target it effectively to eliminate versus just like kind of like carpet bombing the area? Uh, do we know all the cancers that plague humans? Like it, or is it kind of like spiders where we have like a th- like we know some of them and we have a theory that there's probably like 80 percent we haven't met yeah i would say it's maybe less that and more that every human has different genetics so our background mm-hmm. genetics are different and every cancer has different genetics so while we pool them into areas based on where they formed genetically they can be extremely heterogeneous so mm-hmm. so absolutely uh you know the way people respond to cancer is dependent upon that specific cancer's mutations and their own genetic background. And both of those can have pretty dramatic impacts on how the cancer progresses and how an individual responds to treatment. So I think very much so the future will be completely personalized treatment where we sequence the person, we sequence the tumor and use an algorithm of some sort to come up with a a personalized cancer vaccine or a combination of cancer vaccine and and immunotherapy to cure that cancer. Is it possible for a cancer that's never been seen before and how it affects people to arise. I imagine that with a platform like yours, you just take what we know and then slot it into effectively treat it. But is it, how, how, how often does something like that happen? Like, uh... yeah. So, I mean, so we know a lot about cancer, but we're learning mm-hmm. something new every day. And certainly with every new yeah. high throughput omic technique, we're learning how, just how much we don't know. In fact, yeah. you know, and especially with epigenetics now, uh, you know, every tumor is completely different. Uh, and, mm. and we can sort of sub segregate them into baskets that, that have cert- certain common features, but really, you know, every cancer can have a suite of, you know, hundreds of thousands of mutations, uh, uh, that makes it, you know, challenging, especially for cancers like prostate cancer, prostate cancer. We've spent so much time sequencing tumors. We've had a really difficult time trying to figure out, you know, which basket they go in and which responds to what. And, uh, and again, I think, you know, the future lies in to be able to do completely personalized treatment for, for these patients. So, um, the speaking of cancer, Barrel Master comes back with some cancer with a, with a question. Uh, how close is your sister company, Oisen's Cancer, uh, treatment from trials from human trials? Yeah. So as I'm, yeah. So I mentioned, yeah. So um, so Ocean Biotechnologies and Entos created a, a, a joint venture called Oncosenix. Oncosenix is the company that's advancing uh, our oncology programs. Uh, that was the company that we were going to do the first in human trial at the beginning of the pandemic and sort of got derailed by the whole thing. Um, but but I think the learnings that we had in the manufacturing and the regulatory with the vaccine are, are we're now, now going to um, go back and apply these to cancer. Yeah. So we're hopefully we'll be we'll get that first in human trial uh, started, you know, within the next 12 months. OK. And then when you you build the, the clinical population that you're going to do your research on, do do you um, spend any time? working on the diversity of the population so that you know that it's applicable to multiple populations. I think that's one of the things that has most concerned me when I've learned more about the personalized medicine is that a lot of times in clinical trials, they just, you know, they'll grab 50 people and then sometimes it'll just be like all people from like New England that kind of look like me. And so it's like, and then that that drug will be prescribed to people that don't look like me. And then it has a different like profile in terms of how it's used. Uh, how, how, how do you counteract that so that you have a good population to to do a clinical trial with and have data that can be uh, translated to multiple populations. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends where you want to tackle that question. I think it's very difficult to tackle that question in the early stage clinical trials. Um, mm-hmm. you, at the, you know, the phase one is designed just for safety. So, so you basically, you want to establish that your drug is safe in, in individuals. Uh, with cancer, obviously, you're, you're working with a population that has cancer. We've uh, we strongly considered doing what's called a basket trial for phase one. So we'd look at, you know, four or five different cancers in a single phase one trial. And that'll give us, you know, at least some idea of whether the technology is, you know, mechanism is applicable to different kinds of cancers. Um, but the but the demographics is another question. I think it's better answered in phase three or even phase four mm-hmm. post-market uh, approval trials. Okay. Because, because of course, you want to, the key, you know, the key question, especially in phase two and phase three, is does the drug work the way I think it does? And based mm-hmm. on that, is it working, you know, better than the competing drugs or whatever the, the standard uh, of care is? That makes sense. The, and at that stage, that it would be like the le- fewer things to de-risk. So then it's easier for you to get the funding to do that type of uh, granular uh, research. I think sometimes when people look at pharma, they think, oh, if they had the cure for cancer, they would hide it. No, I, I mean, you, you research <laughs> cancer. And if you if you had the cure for it, I'm I'm sure you'd develop another company and, and, and bring it to market. No, uh, I, think, so. I mean, with, without, without, without exception, everybody I know uh, in the oncology mm-hmm. development space, they're all passionate about what they do. They're all keenly involved in trying to cure things. And, 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 you know, anytime there's money involved, people make bad decisions here and there. But I think for the most part, the people that are actually doing the work and, and trying to develop these things all have their heart in the right place and are, you know, trying to create cures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I agree. It's just like it's always something I, I say for people listening so that they uh, think of that as they're talking. That this one reason why it's so cool to hear your passion about what you're building because uh if people just see your name they see what you're doing they'll just think you know lab lab coat type person and they forget that but there's a passion there's a reason why you do what you do every day for 30 years Uh, um but so uh uh, master barrel (laughs) barrel master sorry uh there are some publications that suggest that using two input and gate promoters from transcription factors may not be precise enough to target specific cells and specific organs how can uh, your tech target a thal- thalamus or an other organ? I think I may, we may have addressed this, but. Uh, no, I'm happy to answer that. So I think, you know, we're really excited about the fact we can deliver DNA because mm-hmm. with DNA, uh, and, and again, I mentioned, we're trying to get these therapies to every cell of the body. We're trying to get them everywhere, but you, there are places where you necessarily don't want your, your gene or your drug to be active, right? So we mm-hmm. can actually use logic gates in DNA, basically program DNA, to be activated in very, very specific circumstances, whether it's in a cancer that has an oncogene turned on, we can create a promoter or a set of input sequences, as your uh, your uh, listener mentioned, to uh, to basically specifically target that cell and only turn on the computer program or the, the DNA genetic program in that cell. And, uh, and I would say this field of being able to control transcription or activity in specific cells is actually still in its early phases. And I think, hmm. uh, you know, especially with machine learning and being able to do high throughput screening of, of promoters, for instance, and there's several companies doing this now, um, you know, very much we can get to a point in the near future where we can specifically express, you know, certain genes in the thalamus. Great. And I think he, uh, they, I, I shouldn't assume gender, uh, has a suggestion. Uh, instead of using a plasmid to, 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 to blah, instead of using a plasmid to, to, to transcribe for a cat, Caspase 9, have you considered transcribing for the diphtheria toxin? 
Yeah. That's that's a very interesting question. I actually have a paper on using the diphtheria mm. toxin as well. So we hadn't considered doing that. So it's a great idea. Oh, okay. The, uh, is there any anything uh, standing in the way of you using it? Uh, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to take a look, but uh, but again, mm. yeah, diphtheria toxin has been used for several different applications uh, clinically, and so yeah, it could be an option for any of your startups. And this kind of is a a question that barrel master had but at the same time this is one i was going to go down um he was he was going to ask you about you know entos particularly but i'm going to ask about all your, your companies what is the your future vision for them is it is it the objective to be uh, like a pfizer is the objective to be uh ipoing is it uh to be acquired and then work within the suite of another company uh what for all of your companies or maybe if you have a different strategy for each of them what's what's your goal with them for the future yeah, outside so of you I think know, obviously you know, helping people. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, so I think, you know, that, that answer has really changed over time. I think as mm. we've seen the potential of the fusogenic technology uh, and our ability to, to do a lot of different things with it, I think I've been very, very excited about building Entos into a, basically the world's largest uh, genetic medicines company. We would, we really see the opportunity to build this platform into something that can address a wide swath of different diseases from rare genetic diseases to cancer to infectious disease. And, uh, and I think that's the vision for all of us now is to build this into a company and whether, you know, whether we go to the public market and go public uh, or not, or, or raise money or, or even develop products w- without going public, I think, you know, we're going to make those decisions as we, as we come across. Uh, and if, if it makes sense to do that, we'll do that. Um, you know, we, we spun out these sister companies. So Aegis and infectious disease, oncocytes in, in cancer, really to build purpose-built mission-focused teams in those areas. Uh, because each of these areas is, is quite quite different market, quite different uh, dynamics, and so yeah, we'll build those companies uh, out and and you know try to cure cancer, try to eradicate infectious disease, and uh, uh, you know so we don't have a specific goal for any of those companies in mind. The, the 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 mission and the goal is basically to cure disease, and if it makes sense at some point, you know again, I'm very R and D focused, very innovation focused. Uh, you know, we don't have expertise in commercializing drugs and marketing drugs. So we're definitely going to need partners uh, as we bring a lot of these programs through the clinic and de-risk them. And so we expect to have close relationship with uh, with pharma companies and and eventually, you know, it may make sense to, to join forces. All right. Is there a, like a dream type of uh, commercialization expert out there that you would want to hear? It's surprising the number of people listening. So they might not actually know the person they can connect you guys. Is there like that? Maybe not like a person that's a dream person, but is there like a, like what would that person look like or the company look like that you'd want to partner with to help with that? Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, you know, from the, from the companies that we've worked with so far, uh, we really work really well with science focused companies. So companies that really mm-hmm. understand the science well, that prioritize the science and scientific data above everything else and, uh, and really have global reach. So, um, and, and I wouldn't want to necessarily name one company or the other because different companies have different expertise yeah. in different disease areas. So I think there are, you know, world leaders in different disease areas that we would love to work with. And, and, uh, and as we bring you know, our platform, you know, through the different programs, through clinical trials, uh, you know, we're looking forward to making those connections and, and, uh, and curing some disease. For, um, so advice for people either like basically 25 to 35, they're out there. They see cool stuff like what you're working on. They, you know, either longevity, gene therapies, they see the future of technology being built and they want to be a part of it. What advice would you give them to find their way into uh, being a part of it? It sounds like one of them is definitely send people your CVs and you get to co-found something with you uh, as an option. But uh, what other advice would you give people? 
No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna double down on that. I say we're hmm. we're growing. We're working in this extremely exciting, innovative, fast moving field. So please send your CV, um, uh, and uh, we'll definitely take a look. Um, yeah. So my advice is. Uh, uh, don't look at entrepreneurialism as uh, as a barrier. I think for a lot of people, and I have a lot of these conversations with professors all the time asking my advice. Um, it seems daunting to file patents and and you know uh, and do all you know raise money, all that stuff. Um, the only way you're ever going to be successful doing it is actually trying it. And uh, and you know people see uh, you know the the risk of failure as a negative, and uh, it's not a negative at all. I mean, obviously, a fear of failure is what drives you to not fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, but even failing, you know, is a learning experience. So I, I think, you know, uh, you can't succeed in something you don't try. And, and so my advice would be just to, if you're interested in being an innovative field network, uh, if you have a great idea that you've developed, you know, think about how it can be applied and, and generate interest and, and bring it forward. So are there rare skill sets that you find hard to find for either your companies or in general? So I would say, and again, we really focus on the science. So we're really mm-hmm. interested in people who have been passionate about learning the fundamentals of science. Can really be and, and not hyper focused. We really like people that are that have a general scientific mind that can jump from different projects. Because so we find that we've had the biz- biggest success when we sort of work outside our comfort zone. So bring mm-hmm. in a naive perspective, uh, maybe you know someone with the expertise of machine learning applying to you know working on you know lipid chemistry or something. I think trying to marry different disciplines together and, and take people a little bit out of the comfort zone comfort zone has resulted in sort of the best advances. Yeah, I think the sometimes when people think of innovation, uh, I think it's like this really complex thing, but innovation is really just like taking two or more things that haven't been combined before and combining them. And then that you have innovation. Like you, like you can make a sentence that technically is innovative by making a sentence that's never been said before. It's actually really easy to do. Uh, in, in fact, I challenge everybody to leave a comment that's never been said before on, in the world. Uh, it's actually surprisingly uh, easy to do. The, uh, what? How do you keep investors happy? So you you have this like this grand vision for yourself, and to some extent, you know, investors are gonna like that, especially when you have a platform. They kind of like they love having a platform, but they also like you being specific. So like it's kind of nice you get to, you can marry both of those things. Which, uh, but how do you how do you find good investors? Because there's there's smart money, there's dumb money, and then there's people who get where you're going and can help you. Uh, so how do you find great investors, and then how do you keep them happy over the long haul so they can help you achieve your vision? I think we've uh, we've found great investors. Well, I mean for for us. You know, having a uh, mission-oriented investors is really important. So, mm-hmm. so investors that understand what we're trying to achieve uh, over the long term, and uh, and obviously, you know, the the nuts and bolts of what we're doing, what the technology can do, how we're protecting it with IP, et cetera, is all very important. But I think the you know having a that clear line of sight to the end goal uh, is, is really important, and being able to engage investors and be able to explain that vision, uh, uh, you know, and have them get it, I think, is really important. Um, and that goes to your your point about keeping them happy. You know, illustrating the vision, talking about what we're going to achieve, uh, and it pretty much zero percent of the time works out exactly the way you thought it would. But being able mm-hmm. to ex- you know explain pivots, explain the way data is coming in, and 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 how that's changing your vision and where you see the technology going, I think having that that open line of communication is really important. And so this question can be applied to investors, but also is a, applicable to people you're hiring and wanting to work with. How do you differentiate people that say the right things versus who actually are the right people that you want to work with. There's, I mean, even investor speak, there's like, yes, there's yes. And then there's no, which is what they'll all say. Yes. Like it's all the same thing. Uh, so how do you differentiate? 
Yeah, that's a great question. No, I mean, it's the million dollar question, right? So mm. uh, especially in an environment where you're rapidly recruiting. Uh, uh, so we, we rely really heavily on our networks. Um, so mm. referrals into the company, we take very seriously. Um, for, for the most part, uh, you know, we we have people we trust. And, and if the people we trust send in people uh, that they vouch for, I think that 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 brings a lot. For people that just come in blindly, we just do a lot of interviews. So mm. we we interview with different parts of the team, you know, starting with people on the bench and and managers and up to the, you know, sometimes the CEO as well. And uh and I guess if we all agree, if they're able to to convince us all that they're they're uh uh, they're an innovative, viable, ambitious candidate. Then, uh, then we give them a chance. Sweet. The when you're when you're uh, recruiting and you're interviewing someone, and uh, I don't know if it's with you or you know your team all like uh, sitting down, depending on your the stage of your process. Do you um do you find yourself with a, a strategy in terms of uh, asking a series of questions to see what they do? Or do you come in uh, kind of with a sense of what they're doing and ask a question and then um, like really let your empathy try and pull out as much as you can and create an environment where they can be open and you can be open and then like go in that direction. I'm curious about the the the, the process, the strategy of of uh, hiring. It's the same thing with investing. Like this, the 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 translation of what we're talking about is actually quite vast. But um, right. how how do you do that for yourself? There's like there's a great book called uh, Never Split the Difference. Where they talk about like tech, uh, like radical empathy, where you like really get into other people's shoes. Um, but what what strategies have you found to to, to do this type of thing. Yeah, I'll have to get off to take a look at that book because we don't, I, I don't oh, think we're fantastic. using radical empathy, but uh, I think we do a bit of both. So we have sort of structured, mm. more scientific, more background questions just to sort of verify what's on the CV and 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 really see if there's any depth behind, you know, the accomplishments. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have more just free form conversation and, and I'll try it because, because I think, you know, more than just having somebody that can do a job, we want someone that can fit in with the team and get along with the team yeah. because being able to work together as a team is almost more important than to be able to do a specific skill because you know, most of these skills can be taught. And, you know, we have a great team that can mentor and, and, and teach new skills. It's more about having someone who is intelligent, who can, you know, uh, deal with deal with problems effectively, being able to apply their knowledge to new new uh, new questions effectively in a way that, you know, doesn't stress everybody out. Yeah, there was a, a time where I was hiring two people at the same time, and one of them was a more junior person, and one of them was a, a senior level person that had that, like the right skill set to develop the thing we were building. And when they first came into it, like the junior person was like really excited, like they were constantly looking for things to do, and were very hungry. Like they were like reading every paper on what we were built, what we were building. Like it, it, we, you could probably ask them a question before you ask Google, and you get a faster answer. But um, the when we they first were introduced to the team, people thought the junior person was actually actually the senior person and vice versa, because the junior person just was like so like you just you know a little bit more on the ball. Uh, so then that person actually went on to do uh, really great things, which is nice. Um, what in terms of books, never split the difference. I would recommend to you. I think you would love that. So far, every right. scientist that I've ever recommended to says that it helps them. The what books would you recommend people to check out? It doesn't have to be business related per se. Just anything that you've enjoyed reading in the last like, I don't know, like six months. Yeah, no. So I mentioned that having a, having a naive perspective or, or coming up mm. with ideas that are peripheral really have benefited, you know, uh, my academic endeavors, scientific endeavors and business endeavors. So I sort of have a, a list of books that really left an imprint on me. Uh, one of those is The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. So I read mm -hmm. that. This is a while ago now. Obviously, it was maybe a maybe a teenager, early 20s when I read that. 
But the idea that, you know, evolution isn't necessarily an organism-based thing, but individual genes sort of fighting for dominance, I think that that perspective really changed the way I looked at science and, uh, and, and you know, trying to take that naive uh, or, or counter uh, perspective to, to new problems. Uh, I love Kerry Mollis's book on, on PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, just the way that, um, that, you know, typically a lot of these big, uh, you know, uh, new advances didn't come when you're in the lab. They came, you know, for instance, when he was just driving, you know, along country road, uh, and, uh, and, and just to be able to describe that and, and understand that, that, uh, that these ideas can come to you at any time, I think is a, is a good lesson. Uh, I love Moneyball. So Michael mm-hmm. Lewis, uh, and then same kind of idea, sort of taking something that where there's a, just sort of a, a rigorous way of doing things and introducing a, a completely very logical way of analyzing things uh, to something that that just wasn't used to that. I think, you know, we, we can learn a lot uh, for that in science as well. And we try to do that. Um, and I try to do that in my life. Uh, and then so the last one is uh, The Life You Can Save uh, by Peter mm-hmm. Singer. So this is, and this is completely different than all the other ones. Um, you know, I spent some time in uh, in South Africa uh, and spent some time in South America in my career, mostly just traveling and, and we've really sort of seen the other. So obviously we're very fortunate living in North America. You know, we have access to, to all these amenities and, and but there are many people in the world that, that don't have access to anything. Uh, we were really, you know, it was really important to me when we did the trial in Burkina Faso. We're, you know, working in these small towns uh, you know, very little infrastructure and uh, and and really no access to the commercialized vaccines. So I think, you know, this is a great book to really highlight that and, and bring it home to, to someone who may not be exposed to that. The, in, ter- in terms of just the, I, I, I was going to ask you this question earlier, the, the mRNA vaccines, they did require a lot of, you know, they were like, you know, high maintenance uh, to, de- to a degree. Right. What is, what is yours like, you mentioned this before, but like in terms of specifics, like how, what, what what does it take to let's say I, where uh, you develop it in like Puerto Rico, which is great drug development? Um, they give you a lot of money back uh, apparently uh, to develop it down there, um, and then you want to get something to you know uh, Africa, like deep in like the Congo. What like what do you have to do to do that? And then you know what's what is it, how does it compare to our mRNA in, in, in detail? Yeah, and that gets back to the question of why you know why we developed a DNA version of the COVID vaccine, mm-hmm. and the reason is is because DNA is so stable you can you can you know extract it from dinosaur bones intact, right? So it's super mm-hmm. stable, and uh, and so we were able to create a vac- a sort of genetic vaccine similar to the RNA vaccines, and all of our animal data, um, you know, it behaves as good or better than the RNA vaccines, uh, but it's stable in the regular fridge. So mm. we already have a great, uh, well-established cold chain and, and logistics for delivering flu vaccines around the world, just in regular refrigerators. And so this is fridge stable and uh, and stable for well over a year in the fridge. Uh, and and so that, yeah, so it's two to eight degrees of stability for over a year. And, and also, again, this idea that you could give one dose and it would uh, continue to stimulate your immune system, you know, for a much longer period of time, probably over a year of protection. What was the mRNAs it was like you I think it was like um get like put it in something much deeper I think it was like uh like you almost had to like use dry ice or something when you were transporting it like how cold how cold did that I think it was like really cold so minus 80 degrees Celsius yeah minus 80 degrees Celsius initially uh they eventually revised the formulation so it was more stable at minus Mm -hmm. 20 but minus 20 was yeah was how cold they had to freeze it 
It might minus twenty is, is is a lot colder than like that's freezer that's colder than a freezer. That's how cold yes, it is. It's a very um, cold freezer. Yes, uh, uh, for people listening, the um, what, what you're developing the the data and the machine learning aspects of what you're building. Do you ever see a, com- a component where you could you know, not necessarily bunt it off, but make that like an open source thing that people could build on and develop with you, uh, and translate it into what other things that you want to do? Like so, like you could focus on what you're doing, have that aspect be open source, so that you can c- continue developing it, potentially uh, galvanize like that's like a global population. And there's actually a lot of really interesting research coming out that the the private LLMs, for instance, are like winning the day for right now. But uh, there's a lot of stuff coming out for the open source LLMs that uh, suggests that they might actually be the thing that wins, kind of like Linux in terms of being an open source operating system. Uh, but anyways, that's just logic for potentially doing it. Do you guys ever think about open sourcing something like as an example like that so that other people could work with you in developing it? No, that's a great question. And I think we haven't had a specific situation where we had that choice. Yeah. Uh, we've been so mm-hmm. focused on, you know, very precise applications of machine learning that we can't imagine how it might be uh, useful for people to play around with it. But I can certainly see us getting to that point once we've scaled. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of an analogous question isn't machine learning, but it's in the platform itself. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we talk about should we exclusively work with companies to do a specific drug or should we be non-exclusive and sort of give it to everybody to try out their own things? And I think we're, we've been talking a lot about that. I think initially we're going to have some exclusive relationships, you know, with Eli Lilly, for instance, to develop uh, drugs. And when, once we get a few wins across the finish line and, and the safety is demonstrated and the, the confidence that we can create more successful drugs is there, then we'll think about, you know, more broadly making the platform applicable to, to many different diseases. Yeah. I'm familiar with uh, Bill Gates and Microsoft, where there was an option with uh, IBM, I believe at the time, where they were going to be an exclu- exclusive uh, licensing of their DOS system. But then Bill Gates was like, nah, you don't need it. <laughs> that worked out to be really great for him. Uh, right. I don't know. Uh, the How does that work in terms of the biotechnology field? Is it normal to have an exclusive license with a couple of people? Or is it normal to not have exclusive and the people just can use it for their... Like, I guess that's the same thing too. How does that work for biotechnology? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of exclusive is say you want to work on, uh, let's say yeah. Crohn's disease. And, and I, so mm-hmm. I let you use my technology for Crohn's disease, but then nobody else okay. can use it. So you have exclusive rights to it. So that's, those are the kind mm-hmm. of relationships we've had in the past. I think, you know, again, once the, the platform is proven to a point where we know we can develop, you know, many different drugs, uh, it may make sense to be non-exclusive so that we could have multiple companies working with the same platform on the same disease. And, and that would increase the that. chances overall of success, right? Yeah. What, um, and you'd be able to achieve that by eventually their exclusive would just run out and then you just don't renew it? Or like how, how would you go from a, a state of some exclusivity to non-exclusive, like people can use whatever? Yeah. So if you think of all the all the diseases that are out there, uh, we probably out-licensed exclusively less than 10% of those areas. And so we have, you know, over 90% available still to, to either develop ourselves or, or, or have relationships with companies to develop those drugs. And so, mm-hmm. yes, we're, so we're considering, you know, a, a vast majority of that 90% maybe being non-exclusive. What, um, so uh, two last questions, which technically is not, uh, not, uh, not accurate. The, what is a question you have that is unanswered uh, that you think about sometimes? Uh, yeah. So the so one question that we had, and this is very genetic medicine focused, but I think mm. you know the holy grail of genetic medicine is to be able to have an orally bioavailable genetic medicine. So so instead mm. of so many genetic medicines now either have to be injected subcutaneously or in your muscle or or IV, so intravenously. 
uh, and require, you know, it's required to go to the hospital to do that. And so, we, you know, if we can develop an orally bioavailable genetic medicine, that would completely change the game, make, you know, cures for these genetic diseases accessible to everyone. And, uh, and so, yeah, that definitely keeps me up at night where it's an area that we're, I think it's possible to do with our platform. Uh, but, you know, finding the time and the effort and the money mm. to, to sort of make it happen, uh, you know, really, uh, really uh, excites me. And think of it like a, a friend. I read this somewhere where it's uh, if you're going to commit a crime, don't commit two crimes at the same time because they multiply and you go to jail for a longer period of time. So it's like innovation is a similar thing in my mind. It's like uh, one innovation at a time and then you can prove it out and then you can build it out to all the other things you're doing. I uh, don't uh, I don't know if that is a similar framework in terms of how you think of things. But is there anyone out there, either a nonprofit or a, a lab working on making it bioavailable through uh, uh, orally versus an injection? And then that being something that. Yeah, who who's doing that? Because that does sound very interesting. Yeah, so there are, obviously there's there and there's been a lot of failures, unfortunately, in the space too. I yeah. mean, uh, I think BioNTech just announced they had a failure with an orally uh, administered vaccine just just today. Mm. So I think uh, again, it's something that everybody wants to do, uh, but I think it's extremely difficult. Um, and, and I'm sure there, I know there's hundreds and hundreds of labs working on it, and a few biotech companies. Uh, and but I think I think we have an opportunity to crack it because again. Our delivery mechanism uh, depends on our protein. And so we have a lot of ability to create a very stable formulation. We already know actually it can survive the GI tract intact. And it's just mm. a matter of getting enough of it in uh, and getting it to the right cells to, to have a therapeutic effect. So the hard part is the absorption, like the absorption rate as it moves through. So if you could like slow it down, it would potentially be a, have more surface area to be absorbed and that potentially could resolve it. I'm curious, like what, uh, what are some of the hard parts, but of it yeah so i would say yeah so it really depends on where you want to hit in the body where how far down the gi tract you want to go and what cells you want to trans uh you know go over uh you know we have the ability to attach targeting ligands to it so i think i think Mm. that's probably where the solution lies in engaging a specific cell type in in the colon for instance or the uh you know in the gastrointestinal tract and be able to to engage the trans systems that are already there to to bring it inside the body i think that's where the answer lies and uh, we just need the time and and uh, uh, and the manpower to be able to address it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, is there like a master newsletter or something for all that you're working on, so people can just like go to one spot? Or like, how can people stay up to date with what you're working on? Because I think it's really exciting what you're doing, and, and I, I, that's usually like the number one question people always ask me is like, how can I learn more? How can I like see what they're doing? Yeah, so I'd say we we certainly we're pretty active on social media. I think mm-hmm. uh, we do, but although we don't have an integrated way of communicating across platforms, we certainly we use LinkedIn a lot. So I think following me on LinkedIn and following my companies on LinkedIn, you'll definitely get all of the highlights for sure. And we're also active on Twitter. Uh, I think we're active on Instagram now. Uh, yeah, it's a great question and and something we're going to work harder to to be able to share more regularly. Mm-hmm. All right, then uh, I want to thank you, John, for coming on the show, talking about your amazing companies. I look forward to everyone's comments in the show notes. I just want to say a huge thank you to not only coming on, but dedicating your life to this because, uh, I mean, millions of people are going to be affected by it potentially, which is really exciting. Thanks a lot. Just wonderful to talk to you. Great, great conversation. Thank you.